Good to see you. Uh, great to be with you today. And can I just say uh, what an honor it is always uh, to have the honor uh, to stand up here and teach you the word of God. And I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to doing that again today. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, uh, we started a new teaching series on the subject of authentic worship. Uh, and the motivation behind this series uh, is to hopefully help us as a gathering learn how to be true worshipers, uh, learn uh, how to be people who lift high the name of Jesus, who declare his goodness, uh, people who praise the Lord out of their understanding of the gospel. And so with that heart and motivation, uh, last week we started things off by laying a foundation for worship from Psalm 150. Uh, And what we found is this, that each and every one of us was made to worship. Each and every one of us was made to worship. And that whatever is worth most to you, you will worship. Whatever is worth most to you in your life, you will worship. We discovered that we are fearfully and wonderfully made to worship God and God alone. That all of heaven and earth is designed to sing his praises. And that we are called to praise him everywhere and with everything. With all that we are, all that we have, the whole of ourselves, we are made, designed to praise the Lord. Well, today, uh, I want to go a bit deeper into the how of worship. Because it's one thing to say that we should worship God with everything. But what does that mean? And what does that practically look like? And so that's where we're headed today. And to help us answer the how, the how of worship, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 63 today, but we're going to be treating Psalm 63 more as a base. Um, Because on top of that, um, we're also going to be in a couple different passages that I believe will give us some helpful examples and principles of authentic worship. And so let's read the first three verses of Psalm 63 together. We We read it during our praise time, but I want us to read this again. The first three verses of Psalm 63. It says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Amen. Now, uh, what we normally do here, and if you've been here for any amount of time, you know this. If you're newer to our gathering, this is for you. Um, what we normally do here at Freedom Village is, is take a passage of Scripture, and we go in, in, in detail, depth, line by line, verse by verse, studying that passage. Um, but today, my concern is more that we would simply see the pattern or the formula of worship. I want us to see how praise comes about. And here in Psalm 63, I believe we clearly see that. And so notice, for example, the psalmist says things like, you are my God. He says, you are powerful. You are glorious. He's essentially saying as well, your love is better than life itself. It's better than living. You see that? So what the psalmist is doing here is stating biblical revelation, biblical truths about who God is, but also about his relationship with that God. He says this, this awesome, great, mighty, holy, loving God is my God. He is mine and I am his. And as a result of that understanding, as a result of those truths, what happens? What's the result? 
Well, again, notice what the psalmist says. He says things like, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. I look to you. I praise you. And so what's the point I'm trying to make? Well, simple. What we learn here in Psalm 63 is that worship happens, praise comes about when our minds, when our minds are gripped by the realities of God and our hearts are set on fire with passionate affection. You see, I believe that it is clear throughout the scriptures that true God-honoring worship begins in the mind. It begins in the mind with, with deep, biblical, true thoughts about God. And so we think about his character. Right? We, we meditate, dwell on who he is. We devote ourselves to, to rich theological truths. We come to know the, the glorious gospel in a, in a deeper way. And then that knowledge, that understanding, in turn, what should happen is that, that knowledge will stoke the flames of our hearts and awaken passionate affections for God. Things like joy, gladness, delight, reverence, gratitude, love, awe, zeal, and deep satisfaction in all that God is in us, for us, in Jesus. Because listen, if you don't know who God is, this is so important when it comes to worship and praise. If you don't know who God is, and you are ignorant of what he has done to save your soul, if you're ignorant of what he's done to reconcile you to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can't celebrate him and be satisfied in him. We used the word appraise last week. You can't appraise him to be your greatest treasure if you don't know him, if you're not pursuing him. And at the same time, if your affections are not informed by your knowledge and understanding of who God is, you might end up worshiping this, the wrong God. Right? And so it's one thing. You can get up here. I was just saying to the worship team beforehand, our tech team, right? It's Palm Sunday. What happens? What happens on Palm Sunday? The people, they're praising God. They're laying down branches. Hosanna, Hosanna, right? But then the day, next day, they turn their backs on him. So was their worship authentic? Yes. But ultimately, they were worshiping the wrong God. They expected a God who was going to bless them, who was going to be an earthly king that was going to conquer Rome. And so they're worshiping that God, but that wasn't Jesus. Worshiping a God, what they were doing, and what we can do is worship a God that we've created in our own liking. Which then makes our praise empty, ill-informed, misguided. The point then is, is that both knowledge and our affections, both knowledge and our affections are essential to true worship. The great preacher Jonathan Edwards, he would often say it this way, in order for there to be heat in the heart, that's our affections, our emotions, there must first be light in the mind. That's knowledge and understanding. And so it's important for me to say this. That's why here at Freedom Village, we care so much, so much about theology and gospel-centered, Christ-centered teaching. That's why it's on the banner as well. That's why I personally devote myself to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Because if we hope to praise Jesus passionately, we must first be informed precisely about who God is and what he has done. And so now you know, I just gave you insider information of why I preach like 50 minutes to an hour every week. I'm trying to help you become a better worshiper. That's my excuse from now on. <laughs> but of course, it doesn't stop with that knowledge and understanding. We're going to see that today. That those ideas about God must, in turn, again, stir our affections. 
They must ignite our passions and intensify our feelings of love and joy and wonder and and brokenness for sin and longing for God and hope in what he has promised. Listen to what Jesus said in a critically important text about true, authentic worship. It's found in Matthew chapter 15. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of the day. Notice what what he says to him. He goes easy on them. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said this. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, truths about God are meant to move our hearts. Our knowledge of God is designed to take your breath away. You can say and sing all the right things and never truly worship God. That's what Jesus is saying. And so what makes worship authentic and Christ exalting? Jesus says here it's engagement of the heart. What that means is if the reality of God and his saving grace for us in Jesus is explained and understood, and we do not feel anything in our hearts, if there is nothing like delight and reverence and brokenness and passion coming from us and out of us, then we are actually missing out on what God intends for us. Psalm 91, sorry, Psalm 9, verse 1 and 2 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with what? My whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. Psalm 68 says, but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Or again, back to our text in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Listen to this language. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh, my body faints for you. That emotions? Yes. And so when we talk about worshiping God with all that we are and all that we have, what we are really talking about is praising God with our thoughts, yes, and amen, but also our affections. Listen, this is really our bottom line for today. I'm going to give it to you right in the beginning. God-honoring worship happens when we both correctly think about God and feel passionately for God. Authentic worship, God-honoring worship happens when we both think correctly about God and feel passionately for God. That's what I believe we see clearly in Psalm 63. But here's what I want to do now. I actually want to shift away from Psalm 63 and turn our attention a bit away from biblical principles and look more closely at two very personal examples of this, of people who knew God deeply, understood God deeply, And as a result, worshiped God, praised the Lord with unashamed, extravagant affection. And let me just give us a heads up on this as well before we get into these stories. Um, Today, really the rest of our time today, we're going to be talking about emotions and feelings and expressing those things. And I realize for some of you, uh, that terrifies you. Uh, But let me be really clear. What I am not advocating for here today is emotionalism in terms of artificial manipulation. Okay? We're not trying to manipulate you. I'm talking about stirring, I'm not talking about stirring up feelings just for the sake of feelings. But what I am advocating for, and what I believe the Bible clearly teaches, is that there is a relationship 
a direct correlation between biblical truth and heartfelt emotions, genuine affections. Again, like Edward said, where there is light in the mind, there is heat in the heart. And we can all agree on this, even before we go into this. I just want our hearts and minds ready to talk about feelings and emotions. So let's turn to these examples together. The first person that we're going to discuss briefly is David, the king of Israel. Um, If you want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6, you can. Otherwise, you can just listen to the story. But in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we enter that story. We know that David has very recently been installed as the king of Israel. And at that promotion, if you will, one of the first things that he does was take steps to have the Ark of the Covenant brought back to Jerusalem where it was meant to be, okay, where it belonged. The Ark of the Covenant, we know, right, being the literal place where God's glorious presence was manifested. God's presence, glorious presence, dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant. And his desire, God's desire, was to be in Jerusalem with his people. He wasn't. So David's like, now I'm the king, I'm going to bring God's presence back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. And so David mandates this, he orders this to happen, but bottom line, the first attempt at doing this is a total disaster. It's a nightmare. Long story short, people, two men in particular, two men actually die attempting to move the ark. Feel free to go back and read that story. It's pretty intense. But because that happens, we learn, we get an insight into David. We learn that David is actually, he's terrified. It says that he feared the Lord that day, and he decides to pause this plan. And he says this in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9. He says, how can the ark of the Lord come back to me? This is hypothetical. How? How can the ark of the Lord, how can the ark, God's presence, come back to be with me? In other words, what he's saying there is, I'm not worthy to be near the Lord. I'm not worthy. His presence, I don't deserve to be in the presence of God. And so we learn that David, David learns about the holiness of God here that day. He learns about the greatness of God. And so for the time being, he decides, he makes a strategic decision to leave the ark in the house of a man named Obedem. Obedem, okay, we'll call him that. Well, three months goes by and he gets word. After three months, he gets word from his officials that the Lord has blessed everyone and everything around Obedem. The Lord is blessing now. And so he learns God is a God who blesses. Where his presence is, there is blessing. And so what does he do with that knowledge and understanding? Well, we see here again in 2 Samuel, but also in 1 Chronicles 13, 14, 15, that David makes a new mandate. He calls for every single available musician, the whole praise team, everyone who has a voice, to make use of every single imaginable instrument in the kingdom. He gathers them, everyone who can sing, the good singers, I mean, (laughs) to celebrate, have this great celebration of the return of the ark. And David, what does he do? Well, the Bible tells us that he puts on a linen ephod, he takes off his royal clothes, He puts on the clothes of a thin linen clothes. They were common clothes for a priest. Okay, Just simple clothes of a priest. And look at what happens. It's in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 6. It says this. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michal, the daughter of Saul, this is David's wife, by the way, looked out the window and saw King David. What's he doing? leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And then she actually goes outside and confronts him. Look at what she says. 
how the king of Israel honored himself today. She's being sarcastic. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So Michal is very upset with David. And why? Well, well, it's simple. She was concerned about his image and her image. Concerned about royal dignity. She has a deep concern for their reputation. She had an image in her mind of what a king and a queen should look like, be like, act like, how they should behave. But David isn't meeting that standard now. And so she even mocks him. Wow, David, how, how honorable you look today. You know, look great out there today, right? But then notice her concern. She's saying, how could you do this in front of all the people? Right? The female servants were out there watching you. How could you display yourself that way? Dancing, jumping around, leaping, shouting. You're the king. And look at how David responds. I love this. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father, that's Saul, and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Translation, modern day, girl, you haven't seen anything yet. You thought I was dancing today. Wait until tomorrow. You didn't like my outfit today. Wait till tomorrow. Watch how I praise God next. David is essentially saying, I do not care what other people think about me. I don't care how other people see me. All I care about is God. I care about honoring him. Listen, not only with my mind, not having the correct doctrine, the correct theology, but with my heart, my emotions, and my affections as well. You see, David learned a critical but a great truth about the Lord previous to this. He saw God's holiness. He learned that God was to be feared. If you're in his presence even the wrong way, you will be struck dead. He also learns that that God is a God of blessing, of goodness, of favor. And what happens at that His emotions are stirred. His affections are set ablaze to the point of throwing caution to the wind and praising the Lord unashamedly and extravagantly. What does that look like today in our context? And how would you feel, let's just say, someone was up here in the front or whatever and they started just dancing around during the worship. How'd you feel about that? And insert yourself in the story. One more example, this time from a woman named Mary, New Testament example from the town of Bethany. You can read this story in both Mark 14 or John 12. But essentially here's what happens. Jesus and his disciples, it's getting towards the end of his earthly life. Jesus and his disciples along with Mary, Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, her brother, who, by the way, just before this was raised from the dead, found themselves in Bethany. They're in a home of a man named Simon, a man who was also just previously healed of leprosy. So one man's there, he's well, he had leprosy. Another man who's there was dead, now he's alive. It's six days before Passover, and what happens? Well, they all sit down to share a meal together. And sometime after that meal, Mary approaches Jesus. 
They're all reclining at the table. There were no chairs at that time. They're reclining at the table. She approaches Jesus. She gets down before him. And this is what the Bible says happens. It's John 12. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. She takes a bottle of perfume and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, at that, we learn, if you read the text, read it this afternoon, the disciples are pretty upset about this. We learn that actually in Mark's gospel. That they were saying to themselves, not just Judas, but they were saying to themselves, how could she do that? Why was that perfume wasted? It could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, which, by the way, was roughly like a full year's salary. So you do that, like, I don't know, from a Western context, average salary, I think, last year, $45,000. She cracks open a $45,000 bottle of perfume and pours it all out. They say, that money could have been used better. It could have been used for the poor. Actually, their hearts are not a bad place. we We could have used that to the poor. And so what do they do? It says that they actually scolded her for what she did. In front of the rest of the disciples, I don't know. Did they take? Did she take? Uh, did they take her to the side? I don't know. But we know they scolded her. How could you do this? You've taken it too far. Well, Jesus, as he tends to do, he steps in, and he says these powerful words. But Jesus said, "Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Look at this. She has done a beautiful thing for me." For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. And so what do we see here with Mary? Well, I think a a few things are clear. And again, this is why context matters, because understand why she does this. First of all, we know Mary has been following Jesus for quite some time. She's been around him, heard his teachings. She's seen his care. She's watched him heal the sick. Most likely deliver Simon from leprosy. And then notice as well, just before this evening, this is really personal, she just saw Jesus raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. She was weeping just days before this. Her brother died. Jesus says, come out. She's there for that. So it is certainly fair to say that Mary appraised Jesus, counted the cost, learned the invaluable worth of this man who was before her, and appraised him to be worth her total devotion and all of her affection. In a sense, she's saying, Lord, here's what I have. It's one year's salary. Maybe her life savings. Take it. It's yours. You've given me so much. Now take what I have. And don't miss this small detail as well in the text. That when Mary breaks the flask, usually you crack open the, the stem thin, crack it open, She pours out this extremely valuable perfume on Jesus. Again, maybe her life savings, all that she had. How does she spread it on his feet? It's not an insignificant detail. She does it with her hair. And that may have been an even more daring and controversial act than using the perfume itself. You see, in first century Middle Eastern culture, Respectable, pure women never let down their hair in public. No way. It was always up. So not only was Mary sacrificing her material possessions here, she also was sacrificing her reputation. She was willing to be seen as immodest even 
just like David in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And just like David, she too is criticized for her act. How could you do this, Mary? Why did you go so far? Mary, come on, this, this is too much. It's a little out there. That's a little bit too extreme. But Jesus calls her action a beautiful thing. And honestly, I believe wholeheartedly that if Mary's perfume was worth 600, 1,000, 2,000 denarii, she would still have poured out what she had on the feet of Jesus because she had found him to be worthy of everything. And so let me ask you today, simple question, is there a limit to your sacrifice? Or I'll ask it another way. Is there a lid on your heart's affection? Have you placed a lid on top of your heart's affection? In your walk with Jesus, are you just trying to get by? Like, have you calculated the minimum that you can give while still being considered a good Christian by your peers? Or, Have you counted Jesus as worthy of everything, regardless of what it costs you? Mary saw Jesus. She truly knew Jesus. She learned and believed that he was infinitely more satisfying than all rival pleasures. And so she humbled herself before him and gave all that she had to him. Like David, Mary displayed unashamed and extravagant worship and praise. And so again, what about us? What about you? And for all of us, what what does this engagement of the heart look like? You know, I don't think, it's my guess at least, I don't think any of us are going to be putting on priest's clothes or or making a habit of pouring out perfume on people's feet here in this place. That's not our culture. If you want to do that, you know, ask me about it, I guess. You know, bring your Gucci or Chanel number one, whatever. You want to pour it out on the, I don't know, pour it out on your seat? I don't know. Don't do that. Those are seats. Don't do that. The chair, we'll have to throw it away. But I'm just guessing that probably won't happen. Again, that's not our culture. And so, so what does it look like then? Like practically, or maybe I should say it this way. What can this look like when we both think correctly about God and feel passionate affection for God? Well, let's go back to Psalm 63. It says this again. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Psalmist says, because your steadfast love is better than life. It says, my lips will praise you. It says, so I know who you are, God. I've learned about you. I believe in you. That has led me to deep, passionate desire for you. And what can that look like? Particularly in the context of praise. It's verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will, everyone together, lift up my hands. What the psalmist is saying here is that when our mind comprehends the gospel, truths about the Lord, it stirs within us an affection, a desire, a passion for the Lord that can, yes, don't misunderstand me, can be internalized. It can, that passion, that emotion. But oftentimes is actually expressed outwardly and it's visible. So whether that's singing, I'll praise you with my lips, that's singing, vocal, or sharing the gospel, or serving like Mary, right? washing the feet, or, or giving of what I have, my gifts, my resources, my talents, or, or praying. Right? My mind is full of the knowledge of God, and I'm so overwhelmed, 
so glad that it leads me to, to shout, to kneel, some of you during the worship, to clap my hands, to dance like David. Listen, yes, sometimes yes, because you need to hear this because you're not listening to the rest because you don't like emotions. Sometimes yes, at times it means sit still in your chair. Sometimes yes, it means reflect, to have quiet tears before the Lord. But other times the psalmist says, it causes me to lift up my hands. I think this is important to talk about I thought about this a lot this week. Um, I think this is so important to talk about because most of us have never actually been taught this. Because of our church background, the church culture that we were raised in, right? external movements of any sort towards the Lord in praise, like lifting our hands, is viewed as the stuff charismatics do. It's for the charismatics. You know, there's a few who sit in the front row. They're always in the front, typically. Or in the back, by themselves. Charismatic, they're always in the front or the back. I grew up in a charismatic church, by the way. But listen, this is so important. So important. And, and, and I'm going to talk about lifting our hands and some of you, your temptation is going to be check out, but listen, you come here. And if you're part of this church, you're all ready to hear me ver- preach verse by verse through Esther. You're good with me preaching verse by verse through first Peter, like 30 weeks, <laughs> verse by verse through it. All agree. Oh, it's great. Yes. Good. And now I'm about to talk about your affections. Let's see. We have to look at the Bible honestly. Is what we do cultural or biblical? Is what we do your preference or biblical? And when we look at the scriptures, truly and honestly, when we do that, what I believe we clearly see is that one of the primary ways, not the only way, but one of the primary ways followers of God respond to the Lord with our affections, our whole selves, is by lifting our hands in praise. Hear me. It's all throughout the scriptures. All throughout. It's the most common external movement in praise. All throughout the scriptures. We see Moses lifting his hands. King Solomon at the temple, it says he spread out his hands towards heaven. The prophet Ezra, in humility, does this. In Nehemiah 8, it says all the people praise God together. And how do they do it? All together, every person in the Hebrew, everyone lifted their hands together and said amen. Praising God together. And of course, we see this all throughout the Psalms with David. Just like here in Psalm 63. Well, that's an Old Testament thing. Okay, New Testament. Ready? Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And I really appreciate he singles out the word men. Because, you know, it's harder for guys to show emotion. 1 Timothy 2, 8. I declare then that in every place the men should pray. How? Lifting holy hands. Suggestion? Think that's a Suggestion? How should we approach the Lord with everything? Our bodies, too, is his. And why? Why is this? Well, you all agree with this. Think about it. I think it's because our hands speak so loudly about what we believe and feel. So, for example, when we're angry, what do we do? We, we clench our fists. I'm so mad, right? I'm going to punch you, you know? <laughs> when we feel guilty, what do we do? Like you watch kids, right? Did you, did you eat a cookie? No, right? Their hands are behind their head, right? Hands are behind, right? They're not like, no, no, usually, no, behind, right? Guilt. When we're worried, we wring our hands, right? Sometimes fidget our hands when we are worried. When we're afraid, cover our 
face. When we're desperate or frustrated, we throw them wildly in the air. Can you believe what that person just did? We're frustrated. When confused, we extend them in bewilderment, right? So the emoji, huh? We use our hands. Or, right, when you're from New York like me, you just use them every time you open your mouth. (laughs) We use our hands. Our hands communicate something about what we believe, about what we feel. And so the question then is, why do we use our hands in praise and worship? Well, there's a few reasons you can. You can. Don't have to. But you can, biblically. First of all, we lift our hands, we use our hands in praise as an offering to the Lord. Lifting our hands is saying, here I am, Lord, I'm yours. Fill me, use me. I have nothing to give. It's saying, Lord, my my hands are empty, but I'm here for you. In fact, this is what David is saying in Psalm 141. Listen to this. He says this. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Come to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Listen now. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. David says, he's saying, he's in a desperate place here. He's saying, Lord, I have, I have nothing to offer you. I'm empty. I, ha- I have nothing to give. So take my prayers. Take my prayers. And along with that, he lifts his hands to say, take me. Take me. I'm yours. This is my offering, Lord. This is my sacrifice to you. It's all that I have. It's all of me. And he lifts his hands. Second, we lift our hands to signify surrender. Surrender. And of course, culturally, we know this, right? When someone gives up in battle or quits, what do they do? I give up. Quit. Police come, right? What do they do? Stop running. What do you do? Oh, all right. (laughs) Lift your hands. Put your hands up where I can see them, right? It means surrender. And the same thing is true in worship. When I come to him, understanding that he is holy and I am not, that he is Lord of my life and I am not, that stirs my heart, leads me to a place of surrender, which can then result in me lifting my hands before him. It doesn't have to, but it can. It's saying again, I give up, Lord. I'm tired of trying to go my own way. I'm submitting my life to you, to following you. Please lead me, guide me. I surrender all to you, Jesus. Right? I could go on and on here, but I'll just give you one more reason we lift our hands, and that is because we are both free and have victory. Because we are both free and have victory. You see, the good news of the gospel is this, that we win, <laughs> Period. We win. That in Christ, we have victory. Jesus has conquered sin, Satan, and death. He has redeemed us back to himself. And for those who trust in him, who surrender their lives to him as as Savior and Lord, we know that we have been set free from the bondage of sin and we have life, we have victory with him forever. And of course, again, culturally, don't act like this is something new. We understand this because we do this in culture. If you've ever watched on TV, you've ever attended a sporting event, your team scores a goal, makes a last second shot, scores the game winning touchdown. What do we do? We shout, we celebrate. And a lot of times, even the most introverted person raises their hands. You like golf? Most of you probably don't. I do. I was just, you know, Tiger, big news. Tiger Woods is back. He's playing the Masters. It's the biggest golf tournament. And so, you know, I was like watching highlight clips the last like 25 years of Tiger Woods. And there's this shot he makes. It's like 2015, number 16 of the Masters. 
Some of you checked out. Don't. And he's got it. He's got to make the shot. He's off the green and he chips it. And the way there's this huge slope, right? And the hole's at the bottom. And, and he's here and the hole is over there. But he, but he shoots it this way. Not towards the hole. He shoots it this way. And, it, and it, someone's interested. I say, I got you. For those online, it was, there was like, oh, all right. I should show the clip. We should pull it up. No. Uh, but, but he shoots it over here, and it's just on perfect speed on the crest of this hill, and then it starts to trickle down the hill. Little by little, trickling down the hill. And, and then it gets to the, to the hole, and it's beautiful. It makes a commercial for Nike. The ball has a Nike check on it. It gets to the edge of the hole. The edge is right here. It gets to the edge of the hole, and it stops, and it shows the Nike sign. And everyone holds their breath. And then it tips over. And Tiger is like, and you look at all of these like gentlemen golf clappers, you know, like everyone's white, like me, like clapping, right? Usually, right? They're going out of their minds. Wow, I can't believe it, right? Everyone. And that's at like the master's. Right, this, this very conservative, right, very, you're not even allowed a cell phone in that place. It's not allowed. Very prestigious. People are out of their minds. Right? If you ever watch me coach a high school basketball game here, you understand too. I'm out of my mind. The score is like 12 to 14 or something. I'm just like, ah, you know, I'm going crazy. But that, we understand this. And so it is with those who have victory in Jesus. We lift our hands in praise to him. Because he has won. And listen, let me be very, very clear. Again, because some of you, maybe you've chosen not to listen. This is controversial to you for some reason. You don't have to lift your hands. I'm not going to go in the back afterwards or week in and week out, and I'm not going to check. Actually, I don't care. But what I want you to know is that you are free to do so. And you are free to do so in this place, as long as I'm the pastor. And by the way, not only are you free to do so, you have a really, really good reason to do so. As an offering to him, to signify surrender to him, and because you have victory in his name. So as we wrap things up today, this is the how of worship, the how of praise. It begins in the mind. We'll go back to the intellectuals, me. Back to the mind with deep, biblically founded truths about God. I don't just lift up my hands to lift up my hands. I don't shout or sing out just to do it. It's founded on deep biblical truths about God. We think again about all that He is, all that He has done, as we're growing in our understanding of the gospel. And then with that understanding, deep, heartfelt passion is awakened. Genuine affections come about, and it leads us to joy, delight, awe, gratitude, love, zeal, fear of the Lord. It leads us to praise. It leads us to authentic worship. Authentic worship that is sometimes internal, It is sometimes internal, and it looks like you just sitting there quietly. And no one is going to judge that. But other times, it looks external. And no one's here is going to judge that either. And so let me ask you today, based on what you know about God, as we close, based on what you know about God, and what you say you believe about God, how would you describe the depth and intensity of your devotion? How would you describe the depth and intensity of your affections for the Lord?
What words would you use to describe your devotion to God? Would you say it's passionate, unashamed, extravagant, like a David or a Mary? Or would your devotion, your sacrifice, your affections for Jesus be more accurately described as calculated, limited, measured? God is honored when we think correctly about him and feel passionately for him. And I want you to know this. He loves, he loves, all over the Psalms, he loves to hear and see the praises of his people. John 4 even tells us he's looking for people, actually. He's searching for people who would worship him in spirit and in truth. He's watching. He's wa- Oh, that person, will they worship me in spirit and truth with all that they have? Everything true of the gospel? How about that person? That, he's searching. He's hungry for it. He wants to see it. Jesus held nothing back from you. Nothing. So what are you holding back from him? Jesus' devotion towards you, his sacrifice for you, it was immeasurable. So what about your sacrifice and your devotion towards him? We're going to go into a time of praise now. So I'd like to ask the worship team to come back up here and join me. And this is unique, right? Because we don't always have the chance, the opportunity to practice what we learned right away. But now we have a chance. And so this is a chance for all of us to respond to the Lord in worship. For some of you, for some of you in just a moment, you need to sit still. Actually, remain seated. Be quiet before the Lord. Meditate, search your heart. For others, this is a time of standing, of singing loud to King Jesus. And for others, for others, maybe even for the very first time, you lift your hands to Jesus as an offering to him, again, as a sign of surrender to him, and as a declaration of the freedom and victory that you have in Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us, and then we'll sing this last song together. Let's pray.